Well, hey, good morning. Grab your Bible and turn to the book of Ephesians. You guys realize that intro, those stained windows are in our cafe. Did you realize that? Eight weeks in, I figured that out. So a uh, little, little slow on the draw, I guess. Um, my notes have me reading the passage that we're going to be looking at today from Ephesians 4.25. Um, Craig already did that, so I don't want to be redundant. I got a way better idea. Can we just take a moment and pray for Ukraine? Let's pray. Father, we see um, the images on the news. We, um, we just lift the country of Ukraine. And uh, there are moments where we don't even know what to pray, how to pray. We just claim that you be who you are. With hurting people, with people that are scared, with people that are... whose lives have been turned over, we would just pray that you would be a God who comforts in the midst of this strife, this turmoil, we pray that you would be a God of peace. We pray, we pray for young men, soldiers on both sides of this conflict, not even understanding the grand scheme or grand picture, just scared, terrified that in moments of crisis, you would reveal yourself to them as God. Father, we pray that you would protect the church, the believers in Ukraine. And Father, we uh, Look forward to stories that even in the midst of such chaos and such despair of how you moved, of how you saved, and how you revealed yourself. Father, we entrust it to your care, and we lift the people of Ukraine. Protect them. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we jump into this passage, we're only going to be in eight verses this morning. If you were to look through some of the themes that are in these eight verses... They include don't lie, don't let anger consume you, keep short lists, don't steal, work hard, be generous, totally uh, talk graciously, don't be bitter, don't slander, don't root against other people, be kind, be tenderhearted, be forgiving. I got plenty to unpack. We got a lot of work to do today. And I'm going to take these different themes, I'm going to put them under two broad umbrellas. One of them is going to be integrity, and one of them is going to be under grace. And, and I would just tell you, even as I move through these things, one of the dangers that we have when we come to a list like this in Scripture is all of a sudden we look and we say, okay, we're, we're supposed to do this, we're supposed to do this, we're supposed to do this, check, check, check. And, and here's the interesting thing. When you see a list like this, if you were to leave here today and be like, oh, what's your preacher preach about? Well, he talked to us about being honest, and he talked to us about being quick to forgive. I don't think it would shock anybody that I was teaching on that in a church, would it? Like, I think you could go to a synagogue, a mosque, a temple, and hear a very similar message. These are universal virtues. The, the, the challenge this morning is not to explain how we're to live, but to also keep in mind why we're to live this way. Most religious systems would say, this is the, these are the things that you do, this is the way that you live, and in doing so, you'll have A, a better life, and B, God will be happy with you. Our motivation as believers is completely upside down because God's already loved us, because he's already shown us grace, because he's forgiven us, we live in response. Our identity drives our activity. Our activity doesn't drive our identity before God. We've got to be very, very careful that we don't get those backwards as we look at this text. The big idea this morning, if you're keeping notes, is this, following Jesus requires seeing ourselves honestly and others with grace. That was the big idea I had Thursday. I came up with a better idea yesterday. Integrity and grace are the results of fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's not in your notes, but 
a good theme for this, me- or this message or a good thesis statement would be this. Integrity and grace are the results of fixing our eyes on Jesus. I'm going to be bouncing back and forth in these eight verses. Keep a text handy or keep the word in front of you, be it a copy of the Bible or on mobile device, whatever it is. Here's three motives for change. Hopefully you see these. Here's the first. The alternative to change, the the alternative to putting off certain behaviors, the alternative is broken. The first word in verse 25 is therefore. And what Paul is doing is he is referring back to what he's just argued. As a reminder in verse 17, he said this, now I say and testify to the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Then listen to the description, in the futility of their minds. What he's saying is culture has chosen a futile path. He says that they're darkened in their understanding, verse 18, alienated from the life of God. They are ignorant. They have hard hearts. The last verse in this passage in verse 32, but be kind, tenderhearted. What's being contrasted here is hard hearts and tender hearts. And Paul's saying, put off that old behavior. It's interesting, I was listening to one of the, my favorite preachers that I listened to, a guy by the name of Tim Keller. He's out of New York, and he was teaching through this passage. Now, there were two concerning things that he said in his teaching. The first was, when I called up and looked at his teaching on these eight verses, he preached 11 messages on these eight verses. I'm going to have a problem covering this in one. The second thing that he said, and I quote here, this is one of the quotes that he gave. He says this, our trust, as it relates to our country and our culture, he said, our trust in our institutions is at an all-time low. Our trust in our institutions are at an all-time low. Would you agree with him on that? Okay, great. Here's the problem. He wrote it in 1991. Okay, 1991, that's pre-internet. That's pre-social media. In 1991, 9-11 was a number that you called in an emergency. That was pre-Monica Lewinsky. Like, that's way back there. And if he was saying in 1991 that our faith in our institutions was at an all-time low, I'd be curious to see what he says today. We live in a culture where we don't trust the news, we don't trust political leaders. Even this week, watching the news in Ukraine, I'm flipping between different news sources. I'm watching Fox News. Okay, here's a challenge for you Fox News watchers. Okay, see if you can watch one half hour of Ukraine coverage without them blaming the whole conflict on Biden's weak leadership. Challenge. Then flip over to CNN. CNN watchers, challenge. See if you can go a half hour without watching, having CNN blame the Ukrainian crisis on four years of Trump's broken foreign policy. See, see, here's the problem. We don't trust any news source because the news sources aren't even giving us the news anymore. They're giving us propaganda. They have an agenda. Hey, clue for you folks. What is CNN's agenda? What is Fox's agenda right now? Midterm elections. It's clear. And in the midst of this, you're trying to sort through it all and figure out what is truth, but you're just distrusting the politicians, the news. In our country, there's a distrust of any type of law enforcement, be it police, be it courts, 
any authority, be it corporate America, be it church leaders, be it educational systems. And by the way, some of this is with good reason. I would just argue in our country over the last 30 years, there has been a failure in integrity at all levels. And because we don't trust, we don't submit. And I'm fully aware that, that as a leader, I no longer get the benefit of the doubt. I'm, I'm talking in the midst of a culture that doesn't even believe in absolute truth. Well, you have your truth, and I have my truth. So, so try talking about integrity to a culture that has dismissed the idea of absolute truth. And, and by the way, our country, talk about forgiveness in the face of a country that's way better at canceling people than it is forgiving. And here's my concern for us as a church. We're so engulfed in a culture that refuses to trust and refuses to forgive that when we come to a passage where these are the major themes, we don't even know how far we've drifted from what God would have us do. It's like asking a fish about water. They don't know they're in water. They're surrounded by it. We're immersed in distrust and a lack of forgiveness. It's interesting. Ten years or so ago, before I was uh, involved here at the church, I think it was back in 2008, I was a guest of the Department of Defense. I was visiting Iraq. They had brought us over to look at some business opportunities, some real estate deals. And when I got there, I realized that one of their objectives was to put me in front of Iraqi leaders as an American businessman to show that they were bringing investment into the country. They were trying to stabilize Iraq after they had removed Saddam. And I'd been there for a couple of days, and they asked me, and when I say asked, they told me that the next day I was going to be meeting with the governor of Najav. That's a state in the southern part of Iraq. And as they briefed me on this governor, they said, there's some things that you need to know. Um, under Saddam Hussein, he was his chief of police. Dude was an assassin. He was a criminal. And I'm like, if Saddam has fallen... How is this guy still governor? And they said, because the people elected him. And I'm like, so the elections are rigged? They said, no. The election wasn't rigged. This is all the people know. They don't know freedom. They don't know any better. They just default to what the culture's already done. I'm like, this guy won a free election? Yeah, they, they didn't know. See, sometimes we drift with the culture, and I would just argue that our culture as it relates to these themes, truthfulness, integrity, grace, forgiveness, our culture's broken. But can I remind you of something? Jesus is not. Jesus can be trusted. His word is good. His walk matched his talk. He modeled integrity, and he, cho and he showed us how to forgive. So the first motive for change is the alternative, is this hard-heartedness. It's broken. Here's the second thing that I hopefully you can see in the text. You don't belong to you. You don't belong to you. It says at the end of verse 25, put off falsehood because we are members of one another. If you look down to verse 30, it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Paul, at the beginning of chapter 4, he says, a prisoner for the Lord, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. What Paul recognizes is you don't belong to you anymore as a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not the center of the universe. You're not the star of the show. We're living for the Lord. We're living for each other in community. Following Jesus will demand laying down some of your rights. This is a non-negotiable part of being a follower of Jesus. You don't belong to you. 
And here's the third thing. I want you to see it from the text. Uh, Don't give Satan a chance. Verse 27 says this. Coming out of verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Don't give Satan a chance. The NIV takes that word opportunity and it translates it foothold. The King James says, and give no stand to the devil. If you give the enemy a place to stand in your life, you won't, ask, you won't have to ask him to take it twice. It's interesting. In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan's on the prowl. He's on the lookout. A few years ago, we were planting a church in Lemuru, Kenya. We were going to plant another church on the other side of the country in Busia, Kenya. And on one of those trips, my, uh, myself, Kristen, my wife, and another couple, the Westras, Bob and Sharon, we took a couple days and we went on a safari. And it was April. It was during the, during the rainy season. We were staying at a large resort. It has capacity for about 125 people. There were five of us there, the four of us and a single gal. So we had the place to ourselves. We were out looking at animals in the Masimara, and I wanted to go to the place where the wildebeest cross the river and get picked off by crocodiles. Why? I don't know. I just did. And my guide's looking at me saying, that's an hour and a half ride, and it's stupid because there's no wildebeest. They go on that migration in October. It's April. So I'm just curious to see it. So against his better judgment, we drove to the edge of Zambia in Kenya where they border. There's a river there filled with crocodiles. And it was interesting, the day that we were there on the, on the Zambia side, on the far side of the river, were hundreds and hundreds of zebra. They were looking to cross the river. They were staging. And our guide said, this is really unusual, but I got to tell you, there's no reason to believe that they're going to cross anytime soon. They'll stage. They might stay there for hours. They might stay there for days. They could stay there for a week before they actually go to cross. We should probably just get going and get back. And while he was saying it, they started to cross. Put up that next slide. There it is. So Bob took this picture as we sat in our um, safari Jeep. When the wildebeest are there, there's dozens of Jeeps. This day it was just us because we were out of season And these guys made a dash across the river, hundreds of zebra growing across. That attracted a lot of big crocodiles. And some made it and some didn't, and some got across, and they had bites out of them, or they'd been wounded, or they broke their legs in the process. And when they got to the other side of the river, now they were right where our safari jeep was, and they started to neigh like horses. It's the middle of the day. The next thing that happened was really unusual because tigers don't hunt during the day, but the tigers heard the the roaring zebras and the neighing zebras realized they were wounded and took advantage of it. So as we're looking this way at the river, all of a sudden something shoots right behind our safari jeep. It's two lions on the hunt. And they're joined by two other lions. I didn't even know these things hunted together. Go to the next slide. And about 30 feet in front of our safari vehicle, they take down a zebra. We're front row to the whole thing. We were close enough not to get too graphic. It's gross. They're slurping and slopping and pulling and chewing and gnawing. And they were on the prowl and they got their victim. Satan's on the prowl. If you allow him, well, our chief end Westminster Convention starts, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
He's going to do whatever he can to keep you from glorifying God. He wants you to have a hard heart. And by the way, he's there to steal your joy. What Paul's saying is the, the motives in this passage don't give Satan a chance. So two themes. Here's the first one. We're going to look at two things to put off, put on. That is the biblical way that we change. You can't just stop doing something and not start doing something in its place. Thousands of years ago, a philosopher by the name of Aristotle said, nature abhors a vacuum. Biblical change means we're going to stop this behavior. We're going to put something in its place. This passage gives us examples of that. It starts by saying this, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Hopefully you see it clear in the text, put away falsehood, Put on truthfulness. It's interesting, a couple of verses later in verse 28, he gives another example. He says this, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the question verse 28 asks is, when is a thief no longer a thief? When is a thief no longer a thief? Forrest Tucker, he was born in 1920. He lived until 2004, was an American career criminal. He was first arrested at the age of 15 and spent the majority of his life in and out of jail. His crime of choice was bank robberies. Authorities estimate that over the course of his career, he made away with over $4 million in bank robberies. Here's what he's most famous for. He was an escape artist. He escaped, successfully escaped from prisons 18 times, including San Quentin. Spent his whole life in and out of jail, bank robbery after bank robbery after bank robbery. He was finally arrested for the final time. He would die in jail in 2004. He was arrested in 1979. He got sloppy. He robbed four banks in his own community when he was 79 years old. When is a thief no longer a thief? It's not when he's not actively robbing. Then he's just a robber between heists. You know, a thief's no longer a thief when he's willing to work hard, when he's willing to be generous. Putting off falsehood, you put truthfulness in its place. Now, let me help you with some definitions because there's some hard words here. That word falsehood, can I kind of describe that for you? Stop lying. Flat out, stop lying. That's what it means. Now, you're like, well, I don't lie. Well, I just think we're creative in the ways that we lie. I want to explore this for a minute because lying is more than just saying something that isn't true. Let me give you some other examples that may be, some more, may be a little more subtle for you to consider. We lie when we tell partial truths, either by what we say or what we don't say. Imprecise speech, which leads to false con- conclusions, leaving the untruth believed, slanting our description of an event to our own favor, putting ourselves in a better light. All of that's lying. Here's another one, careful spouses, 100% words. If you're ever in an argument with your spouse and you go, well, you never, or how come you always, those are 100% words. And like gasoline is to a fire, so are 100% words to an argument. They accelerate the conflict because you put the other party on the defensive for more than they're guilty of. Hey, spouses, make a rule in your house. Don't allow your spouse to use 100% words. Sometimes when, sometime when you're not in the middle of a fight, but you're getting along, 
Just make a deal. We're not going to use 100% words, and we're going to call each other out on them. I'm telling you, if I walk into the kitchen this afternoon and I say, hey, Kristen, how come you always? She'd be like, always? Every time? Like, she'll call me out on it 100% word every time. 100% words. Speaking falsehood. Here's another exaggeration. A statement that represents something is better or worse than it really is. I remember 25 years ago, one of the earliest hires that I ever made in business was a guy, I had a critical need that I had to fill, and this guy was uber talented. I needed to get him to take this job, so I oversold the opportunity. I presented the opportunity as better and greater than it was, and he took the job. And for the next year, the next two years, I had to live with the collateral damage that my lie had caused because frustration is born out of unmet expectation. I created expectations that I could never meet. Exaggeration, it's falsehood. Here's another, hypocrisy. The practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. Hey, listen, let me, let me define this. Let's, let's push on this a little bit more. The goal there of taking falsehood, putting off falsehood, and putting on truthfulness, the goal here is integrity. It is integrity. And what I mean when I say integrity is be who you are wherever you are. You're the same person wherever you go. That, that word falsehood, if you were to look at it in the Greek, it actually, it's taken from the word pseudo. If I were to write a book under a pseudonym, I would be writing it under a false name. It's saying put off falsehood, pseudo. Back early in my career, I was working for my father-in-law, and one of the guys that I was working with was not nearly as smart as he thought he was. And my father-in-law loved pointing this out to him. He would call him his pseudo-intellectual. But when he said pseudo, he would always say suedo. He'd look at the guy and he'd say, you're just a suedo-intellectual. And the guy, every time, he'd be like, well, Bob, actually, that's pseudo. And Bob would just smile at me. I don't think he ever got it. <laughs> Integrity demands that we're the same person. We're who we claim to be wherever we are. It's interesting. Ten years ago, I, I owned an indoor soccer facility up in Norton Shores. And um, I didn't play there a lot. I was in my late 40s at this point. I played college soccer. I played there um, for many, many years, but I was kind of done with my active playing. A team was short a guy. It was in the over 30 rec league. They asked me if I would play. I was like, sure, I'll play. So I went and took the field. I wasn't in great shape, way better than I am now, but back then that wasn't great shape. Your standards slide. And um, so, so back then I'm like, okay, I'll play. And I go to this over 30 rec league and the guy across from me, the guy that I'm going to be matched up with, the guy that I'm guarding, right before kickoff, he slides a mouth guard into his mouth. And I'm like, oh, crud. I just want to walk to work tomorrow. That's the objective. Like, I'm not looking for this. And sure enough, the game starts and he's banging. And I go into the boards. He's checking me into the boards. You're playing indoor soccer. And I keep getting checked. I keep getting hit. I'm getting more and more frustrated. I'm looking at the ref and I'm like, are you going to call anything? And he's in a box because I'm the owner. You know, and you got that whole dynamic going on. So... Ball rolls out of a corner, goes along the sideboards. I grab the board this way. His bench is right on the other side of the boards. The ref is over there. I know he's going to come up from behind and hit me. I take the ball right here, and as he comes, I spin this way, make my move, and I throw the elbow. 
And I clocked him. And the ref couldn't see the elbow. I got the call. He was there. I perfectly screened him. I'm not just dirty. I'm good and dirty. (laughs) And um, their bench went nuts. And the whistle blew, and the ref came over and tried to get control. And um, I subbed myself out. Told my teammates, I think I'm going to leave. And I walked out. That's the last time I played soccer at my own facility. I was a pastor. Just planted a church. I'm throwing elbows in an over 30 rec soccer league. Like, like something's broken here. And, and some of you are like, well, why weren't you just mature enough to get your motions under control? I quit throwing elbows. I wish I could have, but I couldn't at that time. But I didn't want to be false. I didn't want to have one testimony in one place and be something else differently. The call here is to integrity. Be who you are wherever you are. And the logic of that, listen, I can give you a lot of reasons, good reasons not to lie. It's bad business. It'll make your life way easier. If you're not lying, you don't have things that you've got to keep track of. Way less anxiety, way less stress. There's wonderful reasons why not to lie. Here's the reason the text gives us. Because God sees if he's all-knowing, if he's all-powerful, if our end goal is to walk in a manner worthy of what he's called us to, if we're in Christ, the reason that we don't lie is because we want to please our heavenly Father. Lying isn't about us and other people. It's between us and the Lord. And if you really believe who God sees he is, falsehood is a really stupid idea. Just listen, you've been called to something else. I've called you out of darkness into light. Put off falsehood. So some questions just to consider for yourself. What's your behavior like when you're all alone? Is it the same as if someone was there, if they were watching? Do I, hate, do I behave differently with my work friends and my neighbor friends than I do with my small group or what I do with my church friends? Does my language change depending on who I'm talking to? Are these integrity breakdowns in my life causing me more or less stress, more or less guilt and shame? So the first thing, put off falsehood, put on truthfulness, the goal being integrity. Let's keep going. Look at verse 29. Second section, just two things to put off, two things to put on. Just two should be really easy, but man, this next one's hard. Put off rottenness, put on grace. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Putting off rottenness, putting on grace. Why rottenness? Well, if you go back to the text where it says put off corrupting thought, that word literally translated, that word corrupting, it means putrid or it means rotten. Now, now if I say rotten or putrid, does something come to your mind? Is there something that you think about? Like when I think about putrid or rotten, it's like a trigger for me, that word putrid. It takes me right back to 2010, I was in Haiti on behalf of international aid five days after an earthquake. And it was hot out, and we were tagging dead bodies. And the smell, 
as you went through certain parts of Port-au-Prince was so strong, it was so rotten, it was so pugnant that you would walk around. Everyone was walking around. They'd take little orange slices or something citrus and they put it up their nostrils to block the smell of death in the air. Five days in, or the days that I was in Haiti, only time I've really done it in my life, smoked the whole time. Smoked cigarettes. I just wanted a different taste. I wanted a different smell. It was awful. And what he's saying is this old way of living, these things that you're putting off, it's putrid. It's rotten. And here's just a reality. In living in a broken world, you're going to be engaged with people. Here's what I would say. Your neighbor's sinful. Your coworkers are sinful. You go to church with sinful people. Your spouse is sinful. Your spouse's spouse is sinful. That's you. Got, you got that? Like we live in a broken world. And the command to forgive in verse 32 already assumes, it already implies that we have been hurt, that we have been, tra- uh, that we have been betrayed, that we have been wounded. Let me define def- uh, forgiveness for you. Here's the first thing. Don't miss this. It's a choice. Forgiveness is a choice. Don't ever let yourself believe that it's anything but a choice. It is a choice that you make. It is a choice of the will. The word means to to send, to leave, to lay something aside. Forgiveness is the canceling of a debt. It's the debt that was caused when we were wounded, when we were sinned against, when we were betrayed. Forgiveness is a three-part contract. When you say you forgive someone, you are agreeing that you will not bring the offense up to that person again. You are saying that you won't bring it up to others And a third one, you won't bring it up to yourself. Okay? Forgiveness is a choice, and it is also a process. I had someone after the service last night ask a really good question. I've chosen to forgive, but there are moments where that hurt, that pain, that wound, that betrayal, it comes rushing back at me. Does that mean that I haven't forgiven? What do you do in those situations? And what I said is, when... when, you make a choice of the will to forgive, there are going to be moments when your emotions, all of that pain rushes back, and in those moments where you're struggling in the process, you go back to the beginning, to the crisis, and review the choice of the will to forgive. It's interesting. Our text says, forgiving one another, doesn't just leave it there. might be easier if it did, but it says, has God in Christ forgave you? How does Christ forgive? Well, Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Hebrews 8.12 says, For I will have mercy towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Okay, question. Does God forget our sins? That's what the text says. Read it. He remembers them no more. Can can an all-knowing, omniscient God forget? No, no. He, he remembers them no more. He removes them from us. They are no longer held against us. They are covered by the forgiveness that was granted to us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, you aren't destined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wrath that we caused because of our sin, God doesn't hold it against us. Now, a couple things as we explore this subject of forgiveness. Let me be very clear on what forgiveness does not mean. Forgiveness does not mean that I forgive myself. 
well, I got to forgive myself before I can forgive others. Nonsense. You can't forgive yourself. That's like the judge declaring himself innocent. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in desperate need of forgiveness by God. You cry out to him and seek forgiveness. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've done that, if you've repented of your sins, you need to see yourself as forgiven. We don't forgive ourselves. Forgiveness does not mean that we put others at risk. Forgiveness does not mean that we put others at risk. We can't always remove all the consequences. If, if your parents were abusive to you when you were a child, you can forgive them. It doesn't mean that you're going to let them babysit your kids. Some wisdom here. Truthfulness doesn't allow or forgiveness doesn't allow you to put others at risk. Forgiveness does not mean that we enable or we rescue. There are times where we might really desire forgiveness and reconciliation, and we might stand ready to forgive, but reconciliation is impossible. When the accuser is accusing, when the rebel is rebelling, when the attacker is attacking, when the prodigal is prodigaling, there are seasons where you would love to have the relationship restored, but the opportunity isn't there. It doesn't mean that you enable doesn't mean that you rescue. And here's a last one. Forgiveness does not mean that there will be no relational conflict or a lack of relational conflict. Some would believe that every relational problem or discord is a result of a lack of forgiveness. That's simply not true. Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And it goes on and says, Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. If, if, if you're living a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, there's going to be opponents. If you want to avoid conflict altogether, stand for nothing. Way easier. Goes on and says, this is a clear sign. What is a clear sign? The opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. God is saying, as a follower of Jesus Christ, sometimes there's going to be conflict. Then verse 29, he says, for it's been granted to you. It's been given to you like a gift that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, this is Paul writing, and now here that I still have, person without conflict isn't in the fight. Here's some reasons why we choose not to forgive. The hurt is too big. In this room, I am not naive, and I know there are people sitting here as we touch, we touch on the topic of forgiveness. You have been wounded, betrayed, and hurt so deeply that your knee-jerk response is to say you have no idea Pastor, what you're asking. And I would agree, you're right. I don't know your situation. I got enough of my own stuff to deal with. I'm just taking you to God's word. Forgive as Christ forgave you. There's another reason why we choose not to forgive. We believe that time will heal. Hey, time heals nothing. Time heals nothing. There's an urgency in this passage. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Anger is like apple cider. It's only dangerous if you let it ferment. We've got to be quick to forgive. And some of you are like, well, I forgive, but the relationship isn't going to be the same, and that's going to take time, and that's going to take time. Hey, hey caution. Think of it in a courtroom context. If somebody has sinned against you, they're the defendant, you're the plaintiff. And if it's been resolved that they're guilty and they are looking to restore the relationship and you go, no, it's going to take time. Here's a couple questions. Who decides how much time? 
Who decides how much behavior, how long their sentence is before the relationship can be restored? Be careful you don't slide from the plaintiff's chair into the judge's role. Danger. Because when you're there, are you biased or unbiased? You're the one that was hurt. Time heals nothing. There's another one. I cannot forgive because I cannot forget. I can be blunt. That's just stupid. You can't forget because you won't forgive. Unforgiveness is a decision that you make to keep reviewing the offense. It ensures that you'll never forget. Here's a fourth one. I will forgive when they repent. I will forgive when they repent. Some of you have studied this issue. You're like, yeah, that's what I believe. And I even got a verse. I brought it. I know your verse because I've used it. I've been where you are. Luke 17, 3 says this. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive him. You say, look, it says there right in scripture, I don't have to forgive if they don't repent. If they repent, then I have to forgive. Can I suggest something to you? Do a study on forgiveness. We don't have time this morning, but if we were to look at every passage in the New Testament, and there's a myriad of them, by Paul, by John, by Peter, by Christ, this is the only passage that you will find where it mentions repentance as a requirement for forgiveness. All the others, including the passage that we're looking at now, just tells you to forgive, independent of repentance. So the logical problem that we have is, do we use the many to interpret the one, or do we use the one to interpret the the many? And I'm going to suggest another problem, because it's just illogical. Why would you give the person who hurt you by withholding your forgiveness the ability to keep you in a position where your soul is rotten, where bitterness lingers? Don't do it. Be quick to forgive as Christ forgave us. Here's maybe the hardest one. Here's my fear. If I forgive, they're going to do it again. In many ways, the choice to forgive is irrational because you can get hurt again. Forgiveness is a difficult choice. You have to release the offense. You have to let go of the pain, the bitterness. You can no longer review yourself as a victim. And for some of you, it's your lack of forgiveness that's keeping you warm at night. And you believe that by withholding forgiveness, you're going to protect yourself from being hurt again. Could I suggest something to you? What the text is saying is let it go, put it off, and put on forgiveness. Because if you don't, Whether you realize it or not, you're hurting yourself, man. You're rotting your soul. You're creating a fertile soil for malice and anger and clamor and all the things listed in verse 31 to thrive. What happens when we forgive? Well, we have the potential to enjoy healed relationships. We understand that we are blessed by obedience. This verse here at the end, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I promise you, Paul's not giving that as a suggestion. Hey, here's an idea. That's a command. In a culture that cancels, in a culture that never lets go of an offense, Forgiveness is so radical that when we do it well, it creates a strong witness. And here's a fourth one. The language is clumpy here. But number four, we are renewed in the spirit of our minds. Why that language? Because I took it 
right from verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. The alternative is broken. It is bitterness. It is ignorance. It is hard-heartedness. The goal, trusting and imitating Jesus. So eight verses should be fairly simple. It's just a list of do's and don'ts. Check your motive. The goal, trusting and imitating Jesus. It's hard. Some of you are suggesting, so I should forgive someone even if they don't deserve it? Yes. But aren't they likely to do it again? Yes. Isn't that illogical? Yes, it is. Unless you're looking at the cross. If you don't understand salvation, if you don't understand that you've been forgiven, this command is illogical. But when we look at it in light of the cross and how we've been forgiven, 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Hear this, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Speaking of Jesus, verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, that word reviled, villainized. When he was villainized, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. Hear this. But continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body. When Jesus was betrayed in choosing to forgive, he entrusted himself to a creator who is faithful. Integrity, grace, forgiveness, truthfulness. We're entrusting ourselves to a creator who is faithful, knowing that God sees. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage. Father, you call us to difficult things. Thank you for asking us to never go through anything that you have not. Thank you for being such a great testimony, such a great witness, such a great role model, such a great example. Father, teach us to trust you in matters of forgiveness and integrity. It's in your name we pray. Amen.